welcome to the Monty Hall Effect. I'm your host, Tim Lloyd. And I'm your host, Tola Martz. Hey, Tim, uh, I would like to subject you to a game uh, that I have come up with, and I'm calling it uh, Asymmetric Improv. And the reason I'm calling it Asymmetric Improv is that it's not improv for me, but it is improv for you. That's the most challenging kind. Let's go. All right. Uh, welcome, Mr. Lloyd. Uh, my name is Dr. Ignacio Norent, and uh, I'm the president of the Union of Scientific Film Consultants, and uh, I hear that you want to get your permit to join the USFC. And, uh, and we have just we have a little test uh, for you to test your scientific uh, bona fides. Uh, is that okay with you? We'll bring it on. Great, great. Okay, so you're in a room with a light bulb. You hold out your hand and look at your hand. Now you walk away from the light bulb. Does your hand appear to grow brighter or dimmer? Well, that's a tough one. I'm going to go with uh, dimmer. Uh, no, actually, uh, it's going to get brighter uh, because the photons are born at the light bulb and then they have to grow into adult photons, uh, which are bigger and brighter than baby photons. It's, it's, it's okay. This is a mistake people sometimes make. Um, which seems more credible, uh, hanging from a rope 30 feet down the side of a mountain or standing on the end of a rope 30 feet above the summit of the mountain? Mm, I'm going to go with uh, gravity uh, tells us that uh, that uh, hanging from a rope is, is usually what one what one does when one is uh, rappelling down a, a mountain. No, actually, it's actually easier to stand on top of the end of the rope because, see, you and gravity are working together in that situation. But when you're hanging from the rope, you and gravity are working the opposite direction. So that that's actually an unstable situation. Okay, um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, maybe maybe you'll do better. Uh, someone is throwing a golf ball at your car. Uh, it hits your windshield at one kilometer per second. Uh, does it feel like a snowball, uh, a rifle bullet? Or does it just leave a golf ball-sized hole through your windshield, uh, you, your trunk, and your neighbor's house? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I think um, I think I might be catching on here since this is movie logic. Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, with the last choice because it sounds the the most uh, grotesque and gruesome. Uh, no, actually, it acts like a snowball. It just kind of bangs off your windshield um, because your windshield is safety glass oh, and uh, safety, safety glass, glass uh, protects you. All right, you got one more. Uh, I'm sorry, you're really having a hard time with this. I, I really have to sort of question. Uh, you have to go on a journey. It involves traveling 4.2 billion kilometers. Do you walk or take a plane or take a continuously accelerating rocket? Or do you get fired out of a rail gun such that 10 feet later you're doing 0.2% of the speed of light? Okay, I think I'm I'm finally catching on. This is obviously a trick question. Um, I'm going to um, uh, take the bus. Oh, uh, Mr. Lloyd, I'm sorry. If you've ever seen um, any of the scientific films of uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes with uh, Bugs Bunny or Sylvester or Wile E. Coyote, uh, you find that being shot out of a cannon is actually uh, often the best way to transit from one place to another. So I'm sorry, uh, we're not going to be able to give you your credentials as a union of scientific film consultants. But Mr. Lloyd, we really do thank you for coming in today. Well, I appreciate your patience, uh, and uh, I've, I've done my best. I'm going to go off and study some more. Um, do you have any movies that you would recommend uh, that I study uh, for my next attempt at this examination? Well, you know, my last film 
was Armageddon. And I feel like Armageddon uh, is a pretty, you know, it's pretty much my, my best work as a, as a consultant. So, uh, so uh, you've got my business card. And, uh, but you, know, you don't have to call me uh, Mr. Norrin. Uh, my friends call me Ig. Well, I, I, I really appreciate your time there, uh, Ig, Ig, Mr. Uh, Ig. Norrin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And scene. Thanks, Tim. That was fun. Well, yes, that was a challenge, and I think uh, a lovely introduction to today's film, which is the uh, 2019 uh, masterpiece Ad Astra, written, directed, and produced by James Gray. Yeah, one of the connections about this. So, so after I, I, I recently saw this film again. Uh, to, to refamiliarize it myself with it. And it's interesting because one of the writers, there's a second writer, and he's part of that whole group that is doing the most recent round of Star Trek related products, right? Orky, Orchi or whatever his name is, Robert Orky, and some of those other guys, uh, they're all part of a crew that, uh, you know, write and direct and make films together. And, uh, None of them have done particularly well of late. Uh, so it was an interesting choice uh, to go with him as one of the writers. Uh, but, I mean, he does write science fiction. He's been involved with science fiction. That is, oh, my uh, goodness. That is a thing that people do and apparently get paid for. So you and I talked briefly ahead of this uh, about the possibility of swearing. How did we feel about swearing in this podcast? I will say, so when you go to do uh, the button for the episode, there's a little button that says, uh, is this explicit content? And I think if we use the Effenheimer, uh, we are supposed to click that little button. It doesn't have to be for the whole series. It can be just for a single episode. So I sort of feel like we're at a crossroads and we can either... We can either let uh, our our inner rage monster, as a as a theme in this movie, letting our inner rage monster go free, or we can you know figure out like uh, one of a movie that I know you like is uh, uh, Repo Man, right? Oh and, yes. And uh, the 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 TV version of Repo Man, they replace the F word with flip, right? Flip, flipping, flipper, you know, permutations that way. And, uh, I mean, we could do that, or we could just, you know, I'm just saying, if you want to let the F-bombs fly, then we probably have to click the little explicit content button, which isn't the end of the world. Well, I think one of the uh, one of the fun things that uh, we, we can do in this podcast is uh, maybe challenge ourselves a little bit. Uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge myself to, to describe the 2019 film Ad Astra uh, without, uh, without using any swear words. And uh, All right. we'll, we'll see. We'll see, we'll, see how... <laughs> we'll see if I can make it through an entire hour. How about that? We'll see how it goes. Uh-huh. Uh, I I found it therapeutic in uh, I so I took notes. Uh, one of the nice things about seeing a movie for the second time is uh, I I could concentrate some on taking notes. So I took a lot of notes. And I found it really therapeutic to bold in some of my notes and then put them in red. Uh, just something about the act of highlighting them made me feel just I don't know just a little better. That's good. Yeah, my, my notes involve a lot of uh, question marks, double question mm-hmm. marks, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of triple question marks and some underlines. 
Uh, so um, yeah, we'll 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 see how it goes. Um, so I think with those, uh, not not to not to spoil the, this entire episode for everybody, but um, is it fair to say that that we we generally have some issues with this film? I have issues with two of our uh, severe issues with two of our three categories. Uh, if we say it's science and it's fiction and it's film, I have serious problems with both the science and the fiction. And actually, my problems are as much with the fiction as it is with the science. I thought, in retrospect, I thought it was primarily with the science, but it's actually uh, with the fiction, with the storytelling, as much as it is uh, with the science. Yeah. So let's uh, let's let's get in. Let's get into the story. So this is sure. this is a um, I guess maybe real briefly before we get into this. Um, uh, you mentioned you, this is the second time you had seen this. Uh, this is my first time watching this movie. I deliberately did not watch any previews um, or anything else like that. Um, all that I knew about it uh, was, uh, I think, your description from our last episode, which is that um, the uh, the director and author, uh, writer, producer, etc., st- uh, had previously stated, uh, quote, uh, this is going to be uh, the most realistic depiction of space travel that's been put in a movie so that was my starting point which which is hilarious because i guess i'm assuming he means fictional film because i mean we've had a number of nonfiction, like uh oh i don't know apollo 13 uh uh, you know movies that are factual that as far as i can tell uh have almost nothing made up and that all the science is is incredibly accurate or or first man right Sure. Uh, which is an exceptionally scientifically accurate film, but so I, I guess he means for a, a fictional film. Let's go with that. Maybe let's go with that. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. Uh, how, how did he do? Well, uh, let's 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 start there, and we'll we'll make our way through the film and and check this movie against that that high bar that's been set. So, uh, uh, speaking of high bars, uh, we we are introduced to Brad Pitt. Uh, in in a monologue at the beginning of this film, um, and he is about to do something uh, that requires him to be at a a very high altitude indeed. But before he does, we hear him basically performing some sort of psychological evaluation, and so that yeah. that sets a tone. Right, this is going to be a movie about psychology in mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, how did, how we did also we... don't don't we find out right at the beginning that he has a forty four uh, beat per minute heart rate, which is exceptionally low, is is almost historically low. So he's a he is a cool cucumber. He's a steely eyed missile man, uh, as mm-hmm. as uh, a character in 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 the other uh, nonfiction uh, film, The Right Stuff, might have said. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he talks about how he's you know he's calm, he's collected, he's you know, doesn't allow himself to be distracted. He's going to be able to work to the best of his abilities. So. What we what we see him doing uh, is uh, he's uh, in a spacesuit. He's climbing down a ladder on the outside of a thing that looks like it's in space. And and at this point, I had assumed that this was a movie that took place in outer space. And yet I see this guy climbing down a ladder. Right. Uh, right. Which means he's either not in orbit or. You could have, I thought about this, if you had a long enough structure, you would have tidal forces, right? Um, so if the very center of the object was at one orbit and your object was many kilometers long, you would have a tiny, tiny amount of gravity 
at the lower end of that object. Tidal forces would pull it, you know, sort of pull it taut. But yes, uh, yeah. yeah. So there's there's like a full there's like a full g worth of gravity. Yeah, basically. yeah. He's 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 climbing around uh, on a ladder, just just like he, you know, was in his own backyard or something like that. Except that he's uh, he's above the atmosphere. We assume because he's wearing a spacesuit. Um, right. And uh, there are a number of interesting spacesuits in this movie, um, all of which are very clearly, very clearly representative of pieces of the American space program. Uh, and so the one that you see him in at the beginning of the movie, I think, is a bright orange suit. So that is a reflection of um, what uh, space shuttle astronauts uh, have worn in the past, um, as well as uh, some some other. Uh, some other suits, some other pressure suits that have been worn, for example, by uh, by U um, uh, U two pilots uh, and anyone else who has to uh, fly in an airplane above the sensible atmosphere. Uh, so that looked interesting, except for the four. I was watching this on a very small screen, and yet it was pretty obvious that the suit was not inflated. It was just sort of hanging loosely off of his body, and and so that was kind of my. Uh, other than the the gravity, which we say, well, maybe there's there's gravity in the space station here. Um, I, I, I start to question what's going on here. If this is, again, the most realistic depiction of space travel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had you know, so you've worked with spacesuits in in your day job, and and I do structural design in my day job, and uh, you know that example I gave about standing on the end of a rope, which is of course insane. Uh, versus hanging on a rope is because a rope can take tension, but it can't take compression. And uh, this thing is clearly, I mean, the filmmaking is weird because it kind of disappears. For a while, he's in the atmosphere and he's tumbling past this thing. It's supposed to be an antenna. It's supposed to be a space antenna. Um, but what it seems to be is just a really tall column that's that's off of the Earth. Um, but there's no guy wires, as far as I can tell. And uh, anyhow, I could go on and on about this, but the, the point is that if you've got, this isn't how a space elevator works, right? A space elevator uh, is uh, always in tension and it extends very, very far up uh, away from the surface of the earth. It extends many tens of thousands of miles. If somehow these guys had a space elevator, it wouldn't look like this thing, right? It wouldn't look at all like this thing. And this thing also kind of disappears when he gets near the ground. Like he's falling past it faster and faster. And then all of a sudden he's just kind of in, in free air and he, and he lands. But it's just, it's a very weird, uh, if it, it, it's either attached to the ground or it's not attached to the ground. If it's not attached to the ground, it should be in orbit and he shouldn't have gravity because he should be circling around the earth. And if it is attached to the ground, it's all wrong. Like the geometry is just all, even if you could, even if we say in 20 years or whatever, uh, they have space elevators, it wouldn't look like that at all. It wouldn't look like a metal truss structure. So uh, the structural engineer in me was deeply offended, but I but I decided to persevere. Somehow we make it through, uh, and, and uh, perhaps we're both able to keep our heart rates down uh, as... Uh, as Mr. Brad Pitt's heart rate was also at a cool and collected 80 beats per minute. Uh, In that whole he, operation. As he yes, fell, as they tell as, him later. As he fell to Earth from uh, what we can assume is a high altitude. Um, and just from what we see on the screen, it, it sort of appears to be not too different from some of the high altitude uh some of the the high altitude jumps that have been done uh in real life uh so the highest record up until a few years ago 
was uh, was made by uh, Joseph Kittinger, uh, who jumped out of a high-altitude balloon at 102,000 feet, uh, 102,800 feet, uh, back in 1959. Uh, that that record was broken in uh, in 2012 in the Red Bull Stratus project um, by a, a guy named Felix Baumgartner, uh, who fell from uh, uh, parachuted from 24 miles or 39 kilometers and then uh, that was then broken again by a guy named Robert Eustace uh, who's a uh, big muckety muck at Google and uh, jumped from uh, an altitude of uh, 135,800 feet uh, or about uh, 25 uh, sorry about 41 kilometers and and the reason I bring up the spacesuit uh, that he was wearing is is that for all of those high altitude jumps, uh, those those three individuals were wearing what is essentially a uh, an EVA type spacesuit, an extravehicular activity type spacesuit. So something that uh, provides the ability uh, to to basically stay pressurized, provide oxygen cooling, deal with uh, carbon dioxide that uh, the person inside it is is exhaling. So basically doing a spacewalk as they are uh, falling from the sky. And uh, we didn't see a whole heck of a lot on on Brad Pitt's spacesuit here, but uh, somehow he manages to uh, survive this fall. Uh, possibly the only person to survive uh, the 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 fall uh, from this uh, space antenna uh, or whatever yes. it is. I, I think I think they alluded to that. Um, one of the things about the space antenna is I, they say something about it. It's for SETI. I have to pause the discussion here to point out that when we say SETI. We mean the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the effort to find signs of intelligent life on other planets. Right? And SETI is is one of the themes that binds uh, through this whole movie, right? So they've got a giant antenna on Earth, and uh, I guess uh, they sent somebody out to the edge of the uh, heliopause or whatever. Uh, out at Neptune, which of course is not where it is, but uh, so SETI is is just is a major theme of this movie, and right away uh, we're on some sort of antenna, which um, I would argue that low Earth orbit is a really weird place to put uh, an antenna that you want to uh, do anything with anything uh, with, because you got all sorts of electromagnetic interference on Earth, and if you are orbiting Earth every ninety minutes, you're passing over all sorts of places with radiation and whatnot. But okay, fine. So uh, another thing about this is why, so there's a surge, right? The reason he falls off the space antenna is there's a surge. There's some sort of electromagnetic surge and stuff blows up on the antenna. What blew up? I'm sure that's one of your question marks, right? Like what? Uh, Things don't just blow up. Like most things don't blow up. Uh, most things, if you light them on fire, a lot of things, if you if you light them on fire, they will burn, and some of them will burn uh, pretty well. But most things don't just uh, you put a little electricity in them and they blow up. Batteries will blow up, but like all sorts of stuff on this antenna was just blowing up, and it and it literally blew him off of the antenna uh, in in ways that just don't make any physical sense at all. Sure, because because again, uh, his his spacesuit notwithstanding, uh, he is apparently a up, you know, above the atmosphere, right? So when you have an explosion and there's no atmosphere to carry uh, that shockwave, it's a little bit harder uh, to generate enough momentum to to knock you off of a giant space ladder. 
Right. And and you have to have enough momentum to knock you off the space ladder, but not so much that it shreds your spacesuit and you die of asphyxiation. And this question of having just enough momentum, but not too much momentum, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make a little spoiler. I'm gonna come back to that concept when we get to the end of the film. That is uh that is quite a spoiler. But uh so 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 the reason why there's you know, whatever these power surges are and explosions, etc., on on the space antenna, are that there are these cosmic ray bursts coming from the planet Neptune. What is a cosmic ray burst, and and why would it be doing something like this? Well, this is this is why I asked the question about uh, you hold your hand in front of your face and you move away from a light bulb, uh, because basically everything gets weaker as you move away from it, right? There's a couple exceptions. Um, if you point a laser in a direction, you can more or less keep the same amount of energy. But without going into boring levels of math, uh, most things decrease at one over the distance squared or they decrease at one over the distance cubed. And it has to do with the surface of a sphere or the volume of a sphere. But as you move away from something, um, you know, things that expand in every direction get weaker as you move away from them. They don't get stronger, right? You're, as you move away from a light bulb, of course, your hand is going to seem dimmer. But something about this thing near Neptune, like, gets bigger as you go further away. Because, of course, if it's powerful enough to, like, blow things up at Earth, you know, we find out that uh, the scientists or the, the space force believe that the effect is being caused by uh, the, the Lima project, which is a spaceship that was uh, that was out there. But but if it's powerful enough to devastate the Earth and it actually is also it devastates Mars as well. So it's not like they're not trying to somehow imply that it's just pointed at Earth. Oh, no, it's a uniformly expanding burst from near Neptune. The point is, if you are anywhere near that burst, uh, you would just be blown into tiny little subatomic pieces, right? You'd be you'd be just blown into, you know, protons and electrons uh, if you were anywhere near that thing. So the science is just completely wacky. Like it's it, to me, it's one of the highlights of the biggest problems that I have scientifically with this is is things decay as you get further away from them. Things decay as the as you get further away from them, uh, and and yet, but you know, we're told we're told by uh, the mysterious generals of uh, space command, uh, or or space force, or whatever they're calling them in this film, uh, that they that these these cosmic ray bursts are growing stronger as they approach the Earth somehow, yes. um, and uh, something about the way that these cosmic ray bursts interact with. Uh, stuff matter uh spaceships uh cause power surges and that sort of thing if if an actual gamma ray burst uh which is another name for, for these things they're they are actual phenomena right um if an actual gamma ray burst did hit the earth uh it would actually have, have kind of a slightly different effect uh, as, yeah. I, as i understand it uh which is we'd all be fine uh well we well we we'd just be uh we would we would have some other problems. Uh, so we would uh, probably lose the entire ozone layer of of the Earth's atmosphere. So that would be bad. So that would uh, 
once that was gone, then of course the ultraviolet rays from our sun uh, would uh, mess with the oxygen molecules in the atmosphere and create ozone. And uh, you know, over time, basically, we would all uh, die from the effects of uh, extended solar radiation uh, hitting hitting the Earth and no longer having that protection of uh, of the ozone layer. Um, but uh, probably not not something on on the order of uh, electric shocks and uh, that sort of thing. Um, I always love in these kinds of movies when these things knock planes out of the sky. So planes are basically uh, little spinning. Uh, you can think of them like spinning tops and you feed gasoline into them. Right. And as long as you keep feeding gasoline into them, the little spinning tops will continue to spin and they will thrust out the back. Your airplane, uh, most planes don't even uh, they need a hydraulic system. Um, but most of their electrical system is actually unnecessary because uh, the flight controls, and it, it's gotten different in the last decade because uh, because of things like the Dreamliner. But historically speaking, uh, planes are actually really robust, and it's hard, barring physical injury to this uh, plane. I mean, planes get hit, for instance, by lightning all the time, and they do just fine, right? Uh, occasionally, a plane will get knocked out by lightning, but it's 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 very very rare, and most of the time, they're completely fine. And, and it's because the, the plane is actually a very, very mechanical system. It's not nearly as complicated as a spacecraft or whatnot. So whenever I see these movies and, you know, something happens and it just knocks the planes out of the sky, I'm like, yeah, it's not really how it works, but okay. Exactly, yeah. So um, so let's see. So let's let's catch up with... Uh... With with Brad Pitt here, so he has uh he's fall he's fallen off the space tower. Uh, everyone at Space Force is impressed by his ability to uh, keep his heart rate uh, never above uh, eighty beats per minute, um, and so they're looking for someone to go on a secret mission, and it just so happens that he's the guy to do it, and the secret mission is to go and find his father, his Tommy father, Lee, Tommy Lee Jones, his father. Uh, who uh, has disappeared on some kind of mysterious mission uh, to the planet Neptune and uh, has been presumed dead for the past 30 years? Something 30, like this? Yes, 29. Yeah. And uh, so what? Uh, what's going on at Neptune? Why do we need to, why do we need to send Brad Pitt there? Uh, we have to send him there because... Uh, well, the reason his father went there was because this is SETI, right? Uh, this is here again. It's about SETI. Uh, he was going to the edge of the heliosphere. They were going to be searching for extraterrestrial, extrasolar life. And somehow it involved antimatter. That they did explain. and But it involved going to the edge of the heliosphere. Uh, Neptune is nowhere near the edge of the heliosphere. And so when the Voyager spacecraft, uh, whichever Voyager, Voyager 2, Voyager 2 uh, past Neptune, something like, I want to say in the 1990s, it was like, so So it took something like 12 or 13 years for Voyager 2, maybe it's 18 years, I don't know, somebody will correct me, but it, it's something under 20 years to get to Neptune or about 20 years. It took like another 25 years to get to what they consider uh, the, the heliosphere 
the edge of the heliosphere. So uh, they wanted to make it in Neptune, right? They had creative reasons. So sure. they're like, okay, we'll, sure. we'll make it at Neptune. Um, Neptune, I'm pretty sure, has a pretty good magnetosphere of its own. So whatever you'd be, if you had super, super sensitive instruments, so sensitive, you needed to get entirely away from the, the heliosphere, by the way, is the, the area where the sun's magnetic field uh, has effect on the rest of the galaxy, right? So it's where it uh, deflects uh, random, some some amount of random gases and whatnot that are passing through the galaxy. Um, but Neptune has a huge, uh, I believe a huge magnetic field and not like Jupiter's, but um, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't go there if you were trying to if you had a super delicate instrument that was so delicate you couldn't be anywhere near in the so, in the solar system uh, Neptune would be a terrible place to go. Yeah, so in interestingly enough, the one of the things that the heliosphere protects most of our solar system against uh, are uh, galactic cosmic rays, uh, and so it's. Uh, the, you know the kind of thing you would not expect to encounter uh, at at Neptune or or at Earth uh, or any of those places, uh, and yet so something about the way that this mission uh, to look for contact from extraterrestrials something about it has gone horribly wrong. It is creating these cosmic ray bursts somehow. Uh, somehow, uh, Doctor Tom Lee Tommy Lee Jones is involved, and so the first step on the path to Neptune is, uh, of course, to the moon, uh, and, and then to Mars, uh, and then to Neptune for reasons that are sort of vaguely explained. So I'm going to plant my first complete insanity flag on this entire cockamamie, utterly unnecessary journey that our protagonist goes on. It's like the least credible journey of any hero's journey I think I've ever heard of. So we are told that, uh, and this happens early in the movie, like they just lay it out for us. Uh, you're going to have to go to the moon and then you're going to go someplace else on the moon and then you're going to get on a different rocket and you're going to go from that rocket to Mars because we have a communications laser at Mars and you need to be on Mars to use that communication laser because of the pulses, maybe? Sure, it's underground. It's underground on Mars. It hasn't been affected by the pulses. Uh, right. That, that's maybe right. The, the least the least unbelievable part of it, uh, I think. Right. It's underground, sh shielded by Mars's, uh, you know, red dirt uh, and, you know, is, is protected. Sure, okay. The underground laser works. Um, sure, sure. But I'm also pretty sure that, that you would still have radio frequency communications, right? And you would still you would be able to have messages that would get to Mars from Earth, right? So you could uh, communicate. Uh, okay, maybe, okay, fine. Maybe you can't, somehow, you can't communicate with Mars anymore because of the surges. Um, you still wouldn't, uh, this whole thing about going from Earth to the moon and then the moon uh, out to the uh, out to Mars, uh, you would just go to Mars. Like, you would just, you would bypass the moon. This is a mission to save the human race, right? If this mission fails, us, hypothetically, the human race dies, right? These these gamma bursts are getting more powerful. And again, all this happens in the first 15 minutes of the movie. The guys tell him, like, we have to figure out how to shut this thing down. And if we don't, maybe we all die. The and whole human race. And it's so important that we're going to send uh, Donald Sutherland with you uh, just to make yes, sure you get there. Yes, we're going to send an 80-year-old guy with a heart condition as your... 
buddy slash minder. Um, I think there was there were definitely because it's Donald Sutherland. There's creepy undertones because it's Donald Sutherland. Right? Of course, there's going to be. So uh, it was one of the things that I actually thought worked better than many other things in the movie was the ambiguity of his exact relationship yeah. uh, to the protagonist. So so this this trip to the moon, right? So the sort of first leg on this hero's journey that makes no sense is where I started to develop to develop my theory as to what what this uh, director meant when he said this is going to be the most realistic space travel movie. Yeah. And what I what my theory is is that he watched a bunch of great classic science fiction movies and has been watching space launches and and you know going all the way back to Apollo, Gemini, Mercury, uh, and decided that these were all f- like visual uh, representations of space travel that he wanted to pay homage to and ultimately fetishize. So you see a lot of, in this trip to the moon, he right, he has to fly commercial. He's flying commercial to the moon. So, okay, wh- wh- what do we think of when we think about flying commercial to the moon in a science fiction movie? We think about Dr. Haywood, Dr. Haywood Floyd flying uh, Pan Am. Yes. And uh, I took a note that this this particular trip to the moon was uh, on a spacecraft run by a company called Virgin. Mm. Which, uh, you know, again, right, similar to, to 2001, calling out Pan Am, except that the thing you see in 2001 is you see Pan Am logos, right? You see, you know, some of the branding of Pan Am. And one of the things that, that Virgin, the Virgin companies do very well is is branding and and presence and that sort of like, like you know that you are on, you know, a Virgin Atlantic airline. You know that you are on, um, you know, a Virgin Galactic uh, spacecraft because they have this like very unique, very well thought out branding. And yet what we see on this, this particular uh, commercial trip to the moon is uh, not a whole lot. It uh, seems kind of... Kind of boring. They charge him a lot of money for, I don't know, something. Uh, I, I like sense. I like the two hundred dollars for the uh, pillow pack. I yeah. thought that was a nice yeah. touch. Actually, yeah, a space pillow. You, gotta, you, you know gotta what it was it though? That was stealing from two thousand and one. Also, because in two thousand and one, Doctor Floyd calls his daughter and has like a thirty second phone conversation, and he gets charged three dollars. So it's the exact same joke lifted from two thousand and one. Yes, like the whole rest of the segment. Uh, yeah, and 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 what he's what. What this movie then does is combines that with the the visual representations of the Apollo era. So you see the all of the flight attendants on this craft are wearing uh, they're wearing these interesting looking caps uh, and that that are reminiscent of the Apollo program's uh, Snoopy caps uh, is what they were called. So it's this sort of white fabric uh, that fits over the head, has uh, two little bump outs uh, for uh, some kind of uh, some kind of uh, communication device, uh, and it's it's white in the middle and it's black on the sides. It sort of looks a little bit like the head of Snoopy the dog, and so he's sort of again sort of picking and choosing uh, bits of visual representation from uh, different pieces of of space history and sci-fi history. Um, and- I love that you caught that because I did not catch the homages to all the different eras of of space travel. But because you've done that for your day job, you know I obsess over structural stuff because that was my day job, and you obsess over the you know, human factors stuff. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's it's the it it is the the human spaceflight history stuff, which is interesting. Uh, so uh, so let's see. So we we make it to the we make it to the moon. Um, 
I don't know. Do we do we want to talk about the the car chase on the moon? I don't know. Can, can we just talk chase. about the insanity again? He's got to save the human race. So it's like, okay, uh, we're going to send you to a war zone, uh, and we're going to put you in a car, and we're going to have you drive across uh, through a war zone, and uh, we're not going to give you a real military escort. We're going to give you some guys with like uh, beanbag guns or something i mean i guess they were lethal because they would knock vehicles over uh but uh we're not going to give you real uh a real military a proper military escort uh we we, you know we could probably even fly you from one place to the other but no we're going to use again i I like it because now i'm starting to see your comment about the visual homages we're going to go back to the lunar rovers that they used in what three of the apollo missions four uh, to drive around the surface, the lunar buggies, right? Uh, that's what these were, essentially. They were tricked-out versions of the lunar buggies from the Apollo era. That is, that's basically what we see, right? So we, we get this, uh, you know, the movie claims to take place in the near future. Uh, we'll, you know, we, we learn shortly after this that they have the ability to, you know, move very quickly uh, through through the solar system much faster than we can with with our current technology and in, in, in rockets and yet uh yeah and yet we're stuck with uh apollo era uh, moon buggies and uh snoopy caps and various other things the uh it's it's just this mishmash of things um and and even so so okay so let's let's say let's say you're making a movie and you decide that you want to you're like i'm gonna have a car chase on the moon with the Apollo moon buggies, and it's going to be awesome, which which has a, the potential to go somewhere. It it could be cool, right. and yet what what really kind of, at least for me, kind of took me out of the scene is is that they're they're driving as if they are driving in a full Earth gravity, right? These things are hugging the yep. ground. They're taking sharp yep. corners, uh, and if you watch any any of these movies from from the Apollo missions. Uh, you you clearly see the effects of driving in one sixth gravity, uh, which is that you have to take your time, you have to be very thoughtful because if you hit a bump, right, you're going to be lifted into the air and then you lose traction and you know you're not uh, you're not you know fast and furious on the surface of the moon. They make no attempt in any of the scenes on the moon to imply that it has lower gravity, except one time when they get it wrong. So there's a theme in this movie with gravity, uh, which is that it never makes any sense. It 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 never, uh, like you say, on the moon, uh, on Mars, uh, on the way to wherever in, in they're going. Rocket. In yep, a rocket. In a rocket. We're gonna in, we're gonna have to talk about that as yep. it's lifting off. You know, none of none, the gravity doesn't make any sense uh, at all anywhere nope. in this film. Nope. So uh, okay, so we make it to the other side of the moon through war zone for some reason. Um, right. And, and and Donald Donald Sutherland turns out to have a bad ticker, but uh, he's got to stay behind, so he can't. He the the hero has to travel on by himself without. With, uh, he has he has uh, cast aside his allies, or his allies have been stripped away from him. But Donald Sutherland uh, gives him a thumb drive before he leaves, and says, yes. "This is important. You you need to take a look at this." Yeah, and and it's interesting to see. Okay, Donald Sutherland somehow doesn't make it through through this uh, because of you know his health and he's old and whatever else. So uh, at the time of filming this movie, I had just just because I was curious, I had to look it up. So uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, as we record this, Donald Sutherland is 85 years old, 
Uh, so this movie is a couple years old, so he was in his, his early 80s. Uh, and so the uh, at this time, the oldest person to fly in space uh, ha was, uh, was John Glenn. Uh, so John Glenn um, obviously has a, a wonderful history in, in human spaceflights. Um, but, uh, First American in orbit. Yeah. Um, and in, uh, in 1998, uh, let's see, uh, was it 98? Uh, thereabouts. Um, he flew, uh, yeah, October 29th, 1998. He flew uh, back to space once again at age 77, uh, the oldest As person. a sitting United States senator. He was a U.S. senator at the time on the Senate Appropriations Committee, I believe, which uh, uh, sure. covers NASA's budget, not coincidentally. No, no, not at all. Um, so, so I have to say, this part of the film has three crazy lines. So I, I could spend this entire podcast talking about the monologues and the dialogues. But uh, right around this point, Brad Pitt says, uh, uh, what the hell am I doing here uh, to himself, which uh, he's there saving the species. I just I just want to remind him um, mm -hmm. astronauts are some of the most focused individuals that I have ever met. Uh, you know, you start off with people who uh, fly fighter jets for a living. And then uh, pick the best of those people to do to, to be test pilots, and then you take the best of them and you make them into astronauts. And uh, yeah, they tend to be pretty focused. And if you had a mission to save the species, you would not say, "What the hell am I doing here?" Uh, and then he says of Donald Sutherland, uh, before Donald Sutherland gets a bad ticker, "Why does he do it? Why doesn't he just let go?" Well, again, they're here saving the species. Uh, but then the third thing he says, and this gets at one of the central challenges I have with this. He's starting to he's starting to talk about his father, and he's just like ten minutes before he sa he has said it's just despicable what they're doing to my father. He uses the term despicable, uh, but then and I think it may be actually after he's watched what's on the thumb drive. But he says, "Did it break him, or was he always broken?" And and he's it, uh, just throughout this movie, I do not develop a good idea of how he actually felt about his father, which is amazing given that his relationship with his father is the centerpiece of the movie. Because at times he has what seems to be a pretty clear-eyed vision of his father as a heroic figure. And then at other times he, he basically refers to his father as a monster. And then he refers to himself as a monster. And we can talk about that later. But the fact that Literally within the space of 10 minutes, he goes from saying that his father is just peachy keen to uh, did it break him or was he always broken? And it's just such a jarring shift. And it occurs several times in the movie. And you don't in the end, uh, I, you know, I'm going to get to when you get to the end of the movie, I'm going to say that I have some questions that I wish I could ask the director because uh, they left me questioning. And, and one of those questions I will say is what was his relationship to his father? Did he admire his father? Did he like his father? Uh, or did he view his father as a rage monster? We have so many, so many questions. Uh, so my my next my next question is uh, why why does it only take 19 days to get from the moon to Mars? Uh, so this is our our first look at uh, how just how long it takes to get around the solar system in this movie. I don't believe it's ever explained uh, as to what their propulsion power is. Uh, they seem to be uh, basically taking a rocket, uh, this, uh, this rocket is called the, uh, Cepheus, Cepheus. That? Yeah, that's it. Cepheus. And, Ce uh, once again, in, 
in this sort of uh, fetishization of space history, the, the command deck of this rocket looks very similar to uh, the space shuttle. So you can see the uh, you know commander and pilot seats up front. Uh, there's this you, you get these beautiful beautiful views of the command deck uh, with all of these buttons and switches and displays and everything else. Uh, and 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 again we have this sort of contrast of we have rocket engine capability that can you know burn the rocket engine the entire way to Mars, get you there in, in 19 days, uh, as as opposed to uh, you know the several months that. Uh, it would take to it, that it, that it takes anything to get there these days, and yet they have a cockpit design that is out of I want to say the late 1990s I think is when when the uh, the space shuttle uh, cockpit looked like that, uh, and you got buttons and switches and there's not a not a touch panel in sight. There's not a you know giant SpaceX uh, touch screen, um, none of that stuff. I gotta have gotta have the cool buttons and switches. So I did some math. Uh, because clearly during most of their travel, and, and this is going to be a four-hour four podcast if I don't uh, if I don't trim myself down a little bit, but uh, uh, looked at the fact that most of their time they're traveling, they're in microgravity, which means they're not accelerating, right? Which means they because there's two fu- there's two fundamental kinds of rockets: uh, rockets that accelerate pretty hard. And then you're basically in a free trajectory, and then they accelerate hard again when they get where they're going. Uh, or you have sort of a more recent kind of rocket, and it only works in orbit or beyond, where you have a continuous thrust, where you thrust till you're sort of halfway there, and then you turn around and you continue thrusting again in the other direction. And uh, this is clearly not that kind. It's the kind where you have some initial relatively high acceleration. So, so I did some math, and I said, okay, if you want to get to Mars in 19 days, uh, it is something like, and you're going to go at 1G, because again, they get gravity weird, but we never see anything that looks like it's more than 1G. So I assume these things can do 1G. Uh, I assumed it could do 1G for about eight hours. And what you get is about 280 kilometers per second, which is about 0.1% of the speed of light. I read someplace that the director or the tech advisor or somebody said 0.2C, which is what it takes to get to Neptune in the time that they that they get to Neptune. So if you accelerate for eight hours at 1G, we can't do that currently with current technology, but okay, let's say they, they do at some point. Uh, you can get going. But by the way, then you're doing 280 kilometers per second. And just to give people an idea how fast that is, if you point in any direction in the solar system, not only are you going to leave the solar, if you, if you leave Earth at 282 uh, kilometers per second. Not only are you going to leave the solar system, you're going to hardly have slowed down at all. You're going to lose about 40 kilometers per second exiting the solar system, and then you're going to go on your merry way. So it's really, really fast, which also means, and this is important later, that anything you come across is going to be going really, really slow by comparison, right? Things in the outer solar system, in the older, in the inner solar system where we are, they tend to move at like 20, 30, 40 kilometers per second if they're coming in from outside the solar system and 10 to 20 if there's stuff inside the solar system kilometers per second. Um, in the outer solar system, it's more like 10 kilometers per second. And these guys are rocketing around at hundreds of kilometers per second. So really, really, really fast. And this movie doesn't understand uh, gravity and acceleration, and it also doesn't understand velocity at all. No. And, and so, you know, on the way to, uh, on the way to Mars, uh, there, there is, a, again, with the sort of fetishization of of existing and, and historical human spaceflight uh, there's a there's a really cool sh- cool uh 
pan across the inside of um, of this vehicle, and you see all the astronauts asleep, uh, as as Brad Pitt is you know awake with his mumbling to himself, uh, and it they they look dead uh, as they're sleeping. So you see them kind of tucked in their uh, in their, their little sleeping bags, and their arms are kind of floating out in front of them, uh, which is you know what what it does look like uh, on on board the International Space Station if someone doesn't you know tuck their arms away inside their sleeping bag um so that's you know it's a good look right it's it's very you know realistic in the case of sleeping in zero g it's it's nice foreshadowing of what's going to happen to this crew uh not not too long into the future uh but also if the craft is actually accelerating it's not going to happen at all because they're going to be sleeping as if they were in one or multiple gravities uh, as the vehicle's accelerating so uh, on the way to Mars, on this secret thing, um, there's I'm, I'm not even going to get to the to mood. save the human race to save right? the human race. The, right. the crew's on drugs, by the way. I, I don't I don't even think we have time to get into the, the mood stabilizers that the crew takes on the way there for a 19 day mission to the um, to, to Mars. Um, but they run across a they run across a craft that needs help. Right? They get an SOS. And there's some hemming and hawing about, you know, can we stop, whatever, we're on the secret mission to save the human race, but he can't tell them that they're saving the human race. And fine, okay, they stop. And they go aboard right. this vehicle. Uh, can, can I just point out, yeah. can I just point out, if it takes you eight hours at 1G to accelerate, it's going to take you eight hours at 1G to decelerate. They just, they slow down. They're like, we're slowing down. Like the way you would slow down for, uh, if you had to pay... Uh, a toll at a toll booth, that sure. kind of yeah. slowing down. Yeah, yeah. You know, stranded vehicle on the side of the road. You may as well just pull over and see if they need right. to help. You know, changing a flat tire. Uh, right. Only in this They're case, they're doing 0.1 percent of the speed of light. Yeah, but you you can just pull over and stop. It's fine. Sure. Okay. Um, and uh, it, instead of a vehicle needing a needing a flat tire fixed, uh, the the problem here is is that this is a research vessel that is full of uh, angry monkeys. Um, Hyper intelligent. Angry baboons. Sure. I think. Yeah. I think they were supposed to be baboon. Yeah, we'll go with that. Something. Yeah. Well, you know, there was just a thing in the news yesterday, right, about how they've spliced human and uh, primate genes, which nothing could possibly go wrong doing an experiment like that. But no, no. I mean, they should. They should clearly be doing this sort of research on a space station halfway between the Earth and Mars, uh, because that's that's really where you want to keep that sort of thing, uh, just in case something were to go wrong. Right. Um, Although, actually, truth be told, if you wanted to stay out of the public eye, you know, halfway between Earth and, and Mars is, 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 a pretty, is a pretty good idea. But people, one of the things that people constantly get wrong is they don't realize how crazy expensive it is to go into space, right? Every kilogram that you want to send into orbit, if you want to just go to low Earth orbit, if you want to do the easiest spaceflight possible, the best you're going to spend is about two, two grand per kilogram, Right. So if uh, somebody weighs 100 kilograms, uh, the, the least that it would ever possibly cost is $200,000 to get them to low Earth orbit. So the things that they have people doing in outer space um, are just uh, crazy expensive. Like if you were going to do research, you're like, OK, Bob, well, uh, we can do this research in Antarctica uh, on a research on a, you know, in a palmer land or something like that or we can go to between the orbits of earth and mars and uh and we can do it out there well you know we do have a very important safeguard 
in in doing this research on a space station uh, halfway between Earth and Mars, which is that if something does go wrong, and the crew happens to be uh, murdered by hyper intelligent baboons, uh, is that if somehow Brad Pitt manages to find his way on board, he can dispatch the very angry uh, monkeys with the special button that says "explode the monkey" uh, on the outside of of one of the the pieces of of this uh, spacecraft. Um, so so we spent our last podcast we spent extensive amount of time explaining why things don't explode when you put them in a vacuum this is such it's it's so insane to me that the director who said i'm going to make the most scientifically accurate film ever made and again that's why we are crawling up this film's sphincter right like i would not crawl up uh a you know sword and sorcery science fiction film like this but the guy asked for it right and he did the most obvious, the thing, how can he love 2001 and pay homage to 2001 and not realize that people don't explode when you put them in a vacuum? How is this possible, Tim? It's, it's, it boggles the mind. Uh, and, you know, this... Because, of course, for people who haven't seen 2001, there is a scene where a guy is in vacuum and he does not explode. It's great. It works works wonderfully. So, yeah, this this film, uh, you know, explodes the monkey. I think it's you know it's 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 uh, jumping the shark or nuking the fridge. Uh, it's uh, at at that point it it's lost what little credibility it has. Uh, so, okay, so so we've exploded the monkeys. We've made it to Mars. We go get to the uh, magic laser communication device. Um, so. I have two. I have two notes about the way that communications work uh, in this movie, uh, which is that which is uh, basically again with no regard for how phys- physics works. So as this this craft is on its way to Mars, uh, as as they're on their way uh, from from Mars again to uh, to Neptune, they have live communication from the command deck to uh, to command space command the whole time. So they're talking, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, we have a problem over here, we got a problem over there, uh, and they're having live communication with, uh, with Space Command, which we assume is back on Earth or perhaps on the moon. Um, but that's, that's, that's not how communication works, right, uh, when you're that far away from, uh, from something. So, for example, the, the light time uh, between Earth and Mars, the amount of time it takes light or radio waves or anything else that travels at the speed of light, is about four hours. Uh, kind of depending on where Earth and Mars are uh, in in their orbits. No, uh, and Nep- uh, that's like Neptune, isn't it? At, uh, Earth, is it Earth and Mars? Uh, oh Earth, no, Earth, I take, I take Earth, that back. Earth, Earth and Mars is between like eight and twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. Sorry, yes, uh, Mars to Neptune is yeah, four hours. That makes sense. Yep. So you were saying it takes four hours for light to get to Neptune, which means it takes four hours for if if you and I are going to have a conversation, our time delay is four hours. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, here's here's Brad Pitt in the uh, secret laser transmission room, uh, and he sits down and he reads a card and he talks to his, you know, sends a message off to his dad, and he just sort of sits there for a couple of minutes, uh, as if you know he's waiting for someone to pick up the phone. Uh, and a couple of minutes go by, no answer. He's like, well, okay, come back tomorrow. Uh, and so they repeat this for a couple of days, and the expectation, as shown on the screen, is that uh, you would get an immediate response, uh, rather right. than, you know, come back eight hours later and see if see if uh, there's a there's a response there. Um, so th- yeah. this is also where, in this part of the movie, he finds out that 
his dad is unreliable, as they say in uh, Apocalypse Now. And that uh, first he finds out that there may have been a mutiny. Uh, and then he finds out not only was there a mutiny, but that it appears his father killed a member, a number of members of the crew. And this is where there's a crazy slash hilarious scene where the chief of operations for Mars uh, says, uh, who knows what happened uh, despite a cover-up attempt, says, that monster threatens us all, and now it's your burden. So I, I just want to point out that she believes, in, including her parents, by the way, the reason this is uh, everybody, it's all familial, right? This whole movie is about, you know, relationships with family. And her parents were uh, allegedly killed by this guy's father. So it's now his responsibility to make things right. The, the son of the person who killed your parents and uh, may or may not be trying to destroy the solar system. Uh, the person that you want to send uh, is that guy's son. And, and he also believes that he's the right person to send. Uh, he says, they're using me. God damn them. Which there's a recurring theme in this um, that we're going to come back to, which is what did he expect to have happen? Like they said, we want you to record a message uh, to your father. But uh, because they didn't let him talk to his father, he decides that he has an entirely different mission now. 100% different from anything they asked him to do or that he said he wanted to do up until this point. Which, uh, you know, is the kind of motivation that someone would need uh, to uh, take the spacesuit that he arrived in, uh, sneak out of the back of this uh, uh, Mars, Mars facility, find his way into a underground reservoir or something like that lake. Uh, a lake maybe sure underground on mars uh which also turns out to be connected to a flame trench underneath the launch stand for the rocket that took him to mars which is now going to be heading out to, to neptune without him this is the point where if the director said Oh, no, my intention was that none of this was real, that this was all a dream that he was having sitting in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I would have been like, okay, yeah, sure. Like he climbs into a hatch out in the middle of the desert to an underground lake, which is not a thing that exists on Mars. And uh, there may be water seeping in certain places near the polar ice caps, but there's no underground lakes on Mars. It'd be great if there were, but there aren't. And uh, you also, uh, if there was an underground lake, uh, that's not where you'd build a launch pad, I'll just point out, because it'd be sort of quicksandy, um, which you can tell because there's actually light in this underground lake. So it's a thin enough crust over the underground lake, which again doesn't exist, that you can see light through it because it makes for, for a pretty picture. But the whole thing is like a fever dream, right? He goes into a hatch in the middle of the desert and swims. There's a line for some reason running from the hatch to uh, the launch stand uh, underwater. For some reason, somebody ran a line and he follows that line. And yes, somehow he finds himself in the uh, flame trench underneath uh, the rocket, which has, by the way, I'm going to point out, uh, electrical conduit and electrical switch gear uh, in a way that made me think they rented uh, somebody's underground utility corridor someplace uh, to serve as this flame trench. Sure. And, you know, the other thing that's that's in this flame trench or that he finds in the flame trench is, uh, of course, an airlock into the bottom of the rocket 
because right you, down at the hot part, the hot, yeah. the super, super, super hot part. Yeah. So the thing about a flame trench is is it's right there in the name is is that it's it's a trench for flame, right? So as you know, d- regardless of of whatever kind of uh, super futuristic technology these uh, the engines on this rocket have, uh, hot stuff comes out of the end, which is you know if it were on as Earth, it should be. Yeah. If the, if it were on Earth, you would actually have you know water suppression, uh, water flowing through the flame trench for for cooling and for sound suppression mostly um on mars you'd need a lot less of that uh, sort of thing but but it's but it's hot and uh as i think we may have talked a little bit about on our last episode uh the thing about a uh thing about an airlock is you want to keep it away from hot things uh right there's there's there are seals there are mechanisms there are things that you just generally don't want to put near near the hot parts of the rocket so you keep the the people at the cool ends at at the ends with you know less temperature variations and you and you you keep the engines at the hot end uh and yet uh as as the rocket is taking off he manages to climb in through uh this air this airlock in a place where it shouldn't be and uh sneaks aboard and gets into some fist fights. Um, again, as the rocket, somebody pulls a gun. Somebody sure. pulls a gun, which is always sure. a good thing space to do gun. on the inside of a super high tech uh, spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, again, gravity doesn't make any sense because they're floating around in zero gravity uh, as the rocket is taking off from the surface of Mars, which again doesn't make any sense. And somehow through the fight, manage he manages to just like his father kill the entire crew on board this craft although technically they kill themselves because one of them fires their stupid gun which is a really bad idea uh because he's unarmed right they've they've been talking to ground control and ground control says to neutralize him but he is not uh armed he has not hurt anyone uh but they do break out the guns and uh somebody shoots something i love it there's a cylinder of something on the inside of the ship that if it uh, vents to the inside of the ship, kills everybody in like 15 seconds. Now, Tim, you've worked on human, uh, you know, systems in spacecraft. Um, is it a good idea to keep things of poison inside uh, a pressurized spacecraft? I mean, you try to keep the poison on the outside, generally speaking. Um, and, it, it, you know, space spaceflight does often require uh, you to use, you know, chemicals and... and um, and materials that are hazardous uh, to, to human life. Uh, so the, you know, the one that comes to mind is on on the International Space Station, uh, and and I believe the space shuttle had something like this too. Um, is uh, you have something called an ammonia boiler, and so you use ammonia, you boil that off, and it has a really it, it's a really great way of transferring heat from the inside of the craft uh, out into space. Uh, and ammonia is definitely not something that you want on the inside of your craft, but the way that you avoid having a giant bottle of ammonia, you know, in in the craft with you, uh, as you keep the ammonia on the outside, and you use some some coolant loops where the ammonia uh, actually is in its own set of tubes, and those tubes are in contact with some tubes of water uh, or some other uh, slightly more benign material, uh, and the water is what actually circulates then in inside the habitable volume of the craft that you can then blow your air over and and cool it off. Uh, so it's you know it's a it's a thing that exists, but but generally you know you don't you try to keep the bad things out as much as possible. Can I can I point out to uh, casting? Uh, can I make an aside on two casting things? Did you catch 
who the person checking people in on the surface of Mars was? I did not. Natasha Leone. Sure, why not? Uh, the actress who uh, was in. Oh yeah, she did. She did stand out, um, right? She was. Uh, she's you know, Orange is the New Black. Um... She started with Slum Dogs of Beverly Hills. Oh, sorry, Slums of Beverly Hills. Um, but she did. Uh... Uh, Russian, Russian Doll, I think, is her big, uh, big Doll, show yeah. on, on yep. Netflix. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So right. she just sort of shows up in here as, uh, for no apparent reason. For like 10 seconds. And then the other thing is that uh, the jerk captain of the Cepheus, who early in the movie uh, Brad Pitt saves from his own incompetence and later tries to kill Brad Pitt, uh, also played a jerk in Space Cowboys. He played one of the jerky young astronauts that don't respect the smart old timers, uh, including Donald Sutherland, I'll point out. So multiple connections there. Uh, So he plays a space jerk in many of his movies. It's a recurring theme. And he's also uh, somewhat famous in Hollywood because a confidence confidence artist uh, made a bunch of money pretending to be him. He's not an actor that you or I know by name, uh, but somebody decided to pretend to be him and uh, swindled a whole bunch of people out of a whole bunch of stuff. And it's become a big legendary thing in Hollywood about how even, uh, you know, uh, dare I say B-grade or, or uh, you know, minor character actors can get uh, uh, can get swindled and, and people pretending to be them. So it's just this weird story if you look it up on Wikipedia. But uh, so everybody's dead and uh, he's got to go to Neptune. Go to Neptune. And it only takes 79 uh, days. 79 days so i did my little math thing again here and uh if you do i think it's 16 hours of a burn yeah is about how long it takes you're doing uh 560 kilometers per second which is 0.2 percent of the speed of light so you have to go about twice as fast uh as you did to get from the earth to uh mars Uh, but it means that when you get to neptune you're going to be doing 560 uh, kilometers per second. So you're going to be uh, moving and grooving. And here's also, so there's this whole sort of drugged out scene where he's like sort of losing it. uh, Very much uh, an homage, I thought, to Martin Sheen's character losing it in Apocalypse Now as he's going upriver. And he's sort of losing his tenuous connection to sanity. And so Brad Pitt has all these dreams about his father and he says all this weird stuff, including... Something that said, I never really knew you, or am I you? Dun, dun, dun. Which, like, deep. Yeah. It's deep is what it's it so is. Deep. Deep. It's movie is so deep. Um. <laughs> how, how do they, so here's one of, one of the other questions. Uh, how do they know where Tommy Lee Jones is? Because they say early in the movie that they don't know where he is. And they can't find him. Neptune's a big place, right? Yeah, you know. But uh, he his ship just goes there, right? His ship just goes and uh, meets up with his, uh, figures out where his dad just is. Just there. Well, he, I mean, he figures out where where it is, um, and and figures out that he, you know, he's taken this fairly good sized rocket all the way to Neptune with its magical engine uh, that can that can go as fast as it needs to, uh, and yet, as soon as he as soon as he gets in orbit around Neptune. He uh, needs to transfer into a much smaller capsule to get around Neptune's rings for some reason. And this is another one of those, oh my god, really. Um, 
his orbit is uh, above. So, so the rings on a planet are at the equator, right? They, they, the rings are at um, 90 degrees to the axis of rotation. Um, so his spacecraft that he arrived in the Cepheus is on one side of those rings. And the Lima Project spacecraft is on the other, which is not at all remotely how orbits actually work. Uh, every single orbit passes through the equator uh, because every single, uh, this is another place where I could just go on and on about it, but you don't have, you wouldn't have a spacecraft on one side of the rings and another spacecraft on the other side of the rings. Both spacecraft would pass through the rings twice per orbit or the plane of the exactly. rings. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's okay. So the the story, such as it is, requires Brad Pitt to end up in a small spacecraft, right, away from from the mothercraft. Um, okay, sure. Uh, to get around the rings, why not? Uh, because once he arrives at his uh, at his father's space station, he somehow the little craft drifts away. Uh, which I well remember the craft went through the. Uh... It went through the rings, and instead of being blown to pieces, which is what would happen in the in the real world, that was one of the nice things about the movie Gravity, right? Is when a bolide approaches you at kilometers per second, what it does is uh, that's actually the one place where Looney Tunes is correct, because basically what it does is it leaves a thing-sized hole through you, right? It just passes right through you, uh, hardly slowing down, and uh, just shears out a core of you and your spacesuit and whatever vehicle you're in and all that kind of stuff and hardly slows down at all because things that are moving really fast have a lot of energy and uh so it just would have swiss cheesed him in a spacecraft and uh that would be the end of the movie but so it goes ping 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 and uh during those ping pings something happens to the 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 airlock or docking mechanism and now he can't dock so uh he yes he climbs out and uh pushes his spacecraft away as he's uh, climbing out of his uh, his little his little shuttle, he pushes it away. Which I don't know. I'm not an astronaut, but it seems like a bad idea. I mean, you know, you just gotta you just gotta burn your ships, right? So once you get there, uh, unless you're on a rescue mission, which he sort of is, except that he's on a mission to blow the thing up, uh, or both. Why not? And, and by the way, he's got a nuclear bomb. Sure. Because the other guys that he that got killed, that he killed, have uh, are ordered to bomb the. Uh, Lima project. Now, I would say, and by the way, one of these pulses goes off as he's approaching the Lima vehicle. I, I think, actually, I think that's one of the reasons why he has problems, right? His spaceship gets, I don't know, his little pod gets damaged by the pulse or whatever. But I guess my point is that if you're on a mission to save the human race and they've given you a nuclear warhead, I think, again, astronauts are very mission-focused. Uh, this is about the, the human race, right? You don't necessarily know what that pulse is going to do to your nuclear bomb. I'm just going to tell you, were it me, I would arm the bomb, uh, and at the point where I'm climbing out of my little shuttle, I would detonate the bomb, sitting right there with the bomb right next to me, uh, knowing that uh, nothing bad could happen to the bomb because it's right with me, and uh, I would set it to detonate in two seconds, and then I would press the fire button, and then I would save the human race. And they would then name high schools and, uh, you know, future uh, states of the uh, United States of North America after me, and uh, hooray, and would all. But no, of course, he doesn't do that. Uh, he goes, he needs to get emotional closure with his father, who might be a giant murderer and uh, trying to kill the human race. 
Sure, yeah, who who at best uh, abandoned him um, and uh, didn't really spend any time with him uh, when he was a kid and uh, has been uh, hiding in orbit around Neptune for the, at least the past 30 years. Uh, but sure, yeah. So uh, a couple of other kind of maybe final notes on the idea of this kind of fetishization of, of human spaceflight that we see here. Um, so we have, you know, the... The inside of a lot of these craft um, looks like the International Space Station, which is great. It's beautiful. Um, again, we had the the main deck of the space shuttle. Um, the spacesuit, the spacesuit that Brad Pitt was wearing throughout this entire film, uh, looks to be a pretty pretty good replica of I want to say a, a, a Gemini suit. Um, so you see that you know we get a lot of cool close-ups of this helmet, and it goes so far as to this space station, which is in orbit around Neptune, has uh, solar panels on the outside of it. <gasps> I didn't think about that because, of course, there's almost no incident solar radiation at Neptune, virtually zero. Again, one over r squared uh, tells us that if you're 20 times further away, you have one four hundredth as much solar power. Yeah, and and we learn as we get in inside this thing is that there is a giant antimatter chamber uh, inside this this space station, which is potentially where these cosmic ray bursts are coming from. But that, you know, if you got an antimatter chamber, uh, as we as we know from Star Trek, antimatter is a great way to to generate as much energy as you could possibly need. That's all you need to do is react it with regular matter. And uh, you've got you got more energy than you know what to do with. So he's you know, he finds his dad, his dad tells him that he never really loved him, uh, et cetera, et cetera. His father was very mission-driven, and, and his mission was to find extraterrestrial life. Uh, he said uh, there's a line in there where it's basically his whole thing, right, is to find extraterrestrial life, and he never cared about anything except finding extraterrestrial life. Yes, and so so we can say at, at, at our most generous, I think we can say that Tommy Lee Jones is is a scientist who has dedicated his entire life to the search for extraterrestrial life. And yet, after all this time, he makes this statement that because, well, they haven't found any, uh, now we know where all we've got. So this is one of the statements that I put in red and bold uh, because it, it made me so mad. When he was a young man, he said, we will not turn back. We will venture further into space. We will find alien intelligence. So not all, it wasn't just that he was going to look for intelligent life. He was going to find intelligent life. But because he has looked around, he discovers, uh, he pronounces that there is no other life out there, no other consciousness. I mean, if Tommy Lee Jones can't find it, then it just doesn't exist. I think that's, that's pretty much all that there is. Uh, and they show some pictures. They took some nice pictures of satellites of Jupiter and Saturn and I think Uranus. And they have those stand in. Um, I, I got the impression that somehow this thing was supposed to be like a giant flashbulb. And they would point it at planets and other solar systems, maybe. And they'd set off the little gamma burst and they would somehow use it. And um, Again, I won't go into all this, but optics says you can't do it this way. You won't. You need a. If you want to see this level of detail in another solar system, you need a gigantic telescope. You have to have a huge, what's called a huge aperture on your telescope, and they don't have anything like that, so they couldn't possibly get all this detail. But they have these pictures of uh, some planets and some other solar systems, and yes, Tommy says there is no other consciousness, and then he says uh, the thing that is just 
is the crux of my entire problem with this movie. You and I need to carry on together, you and I together, because the Lima Project has told us we're all alone in the universe. So he knows that humans are alone in the universe. He has come to grips with the fact that it's about his shared connection with humanity and with his son. And he says this thing. And then, five minutes later, he kills himself. I mean, he's like, nah, screw it, I'm out of here. Uh, no apparent reason. Um, it, nothing that anyone does in this movie makes any sense. Uh, I, no. It, if, it doesn't withstand uh, more than a moment's uh, in introspection. Um, why does Tommy Lee Jones do what he does? Uh, who knows? Uh, why does why is Brad Pitt, uh, you know, uh, interested in this mission? Is he going to save his father? Is he going to save the human race? Like, uh, whatever. It doesn't even matter. It's just to me, if this movie was about a father and a son attempting to reconcile and succeeding, or a father and a son attempting to reconcile and not succeeding, um, and, it, and then if it, if, it, if it did that thing, but it got its science wrong, I would have been okay with it. But it is all over the map. I mean, he, he talks about how great his dad was, but then he says... Because of my rage, he left us. And then later he says, uh, I don't want to be my dad. And then later he says, the son suffers the sins of the father. So it's like he's got this incredibly uh, hot and cold mer mercurial relationship towards his father. And his father has an incredibly hot and cold mercurial relationship towards him. I mean, I just come back to that sentence. You and I need to carry on together, you and I together, because the Lima Project has told us we're all alone in the universe. And literally five minutes later, no explanation, kills himself. Yeah, yeah. And kind of would have killed the sun, too, if the sun hadn't been anchored down to the ship. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're t it's they're not like he unhooks himself and heads off into space. No. He He's still tethered to the sun when he, he, he tries he, to head off into space. And in doing so, right, so there's other, these two guys, are they're tethered together. Uh, and and Brad Pitt is tethered to the space station, and so Tommy Lee Jones decides to uh, yeet himself into the surface of Neptune, and f basically forces Brad Pitt to choose: uh, is he going to un you know is he going to untether himself, and they both you know uh, plummet to their deaths together, or does he let his uh, his father uh, just go off and uh, become one with Neptune by himself? And again, having gone through this roller coaster of uh, uh, I never really loved you, and now that there's no life anywhere else, it's just you and me, uh, and now I'm, I'm gone, by the way. Um, JK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, fine, uh, whatever. Um, and I, I took this note here just as, like, as they were kind of going through this, this final parting sequence here, uh, is that we never, we never really hear anything about... Um, uh, about Brad Pitt's mother, uh, right? Kind of how you know where you know where was she in this whole story, right? This is this is really this is a this is this is a man's story. This is about a, a man and his father, um, and uh, which which made you know, and there's just so much heavy-handed visual imagery in this film uh, that there's just one this one sort of beautiful shot of you know, Neptune in the background and uh, Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones are floating out in space and they're connected by an umbilical cord, a literal mm. umbilical cord. Um, and I was just like, all right, come on, enough, enough with this. Um, so, okay, so, so Tommy Lee Jones is off. Uh, he, he's given up on everything. And uh, so Brad Pitt has to make his way back to his rocket and, uh, um, you know, blow up the station. And uh, 
So to get back to his rocket ship, um, you know, it doesn't have the capsule anymore. It's sort of floated off. Um, but he has that most versatile tool of any spacewalker. Uh, he, he has his two legs. And he uses his two legs to push off from the, uh, the space station and make his way through the rings to get back to the other side of the rings, which is where his spaceship is. But he has a sheet of bent aluminum uh, that he uses as a shield in front of him. So uh, much like in the capsule, uh, when the rocks that are traveling at one would assume kilometers per second hit his bent aluminum sheet, they go pew, 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 and he's fine. And he does not have any punctures in his spacesuit, and uh, he's just fine, and he gets back to his spaceship. So that's uh, the second most egregious science thing in the movie. Uh, followed immediately by the very most egregious thing. When he says in one of his voiceovers, I will attempt to return using the explosion as my prime... I can't even say it without laughing. I will attempt to return using the explosion as my primary propellant. <laughs> what the heck? So uh, it, it isn't established that he's out of fuel, by the way. No, no. There's no particular reason why he would need to do this. That is the the most bonkers thing. Honestly, I would say there is nothing in Armageddon as bonkers as that, scientifically speaking. To ride the pressure wave from the nuclear explosion uh, to get home to Earth. Because, remember, we've established that it takes, you have to go, uh, to get back to Earth in a timely fashion, you have to go 0.1 or 0.2% of the speed of light. It takes you a really you have to go really, really, really fast. 500 kilometers per second, right? That's how much he accelerates riding the pressure wave, uh, which which is just utter nonsense, right? Um, and actually, the show that does a really nice job in showing that is The Expanse, right? Because they have a person who is decelerated very, very rapidly. And uh, you just turn to goo, right? Uh, humans are basically bags of water. And uh, if you splat them uh, at something, uh, they just explode. Right, they just blow into blow into greasy bits, you, which you, is what happens yeah, in those situations. You, you end up uh, that is that is uh, a a realistic way to to end up like the exploded monkey from earlier in this film. Um, so yeah, so what so we see uh, you know this sort of suitcase sized nuclear bomb uh, blow up this space station, and you know maybe the explosion gets bigger because there's antimatter on board and whatever else, whatever else. Fine, okay. Um, it is. Interesting to note, though, right, that there there are there have been uh, designs for spacecraft that are powered by nuclear explosions. Um, yes, right. The 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 prime example Project is Project Orion. Project Orion, right. So the way that Orion worked uh, or was going to work was by by throwing a series of many 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 nuclear bombs out the back end of a rocket. Um, Tiny tiny golf ball sized nuclear bombs exploding some distance from the back of a giant pusher plate on a giant spring. So the giant pusher plate would absorb an incredible amount of force, load up this spring, and then the front of the spacecraft would accelerate more leisurely and the spring would unload over a larger amount of time. Which was very different from what we see uh, on screen here, which is a very small area of the back end of this rocket uh, being hit by a single explosion uh and uh somehow making it all the way back to earth plus can i point out that uh he was basically eyeballing you know let's say you line up 
your you behind you you've got the Lima project and you've got your spaceship and you've got a little dot in the distance uh maybe you can see earth you probably can't see earth from neptune right maybe you can see the inner solar system yeah i'm sure you can see jupiter uh maybe you can see earth i don't know uh but you're 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 gonna eyeball or or even if you say okay i've used a sextant or some piece of equipment i know that i'm exactly collinear between the lima project and the planet earth um that pressure wave isn't going to be uh perfectly precise and if you're off by like a tenth of a degree uh, you're not going to go to Earth at all. You're going to go to Venus or you're going to go to Mer- uh, Mars or you're going to go into the sun or whatever, right? Like uh, the idea that you could point in a direction. It'd be like if somehow I could survive being shot out of a cannon. And if I was in Seattle and I said, well, New York City is uh, 93 degrees by compass from Seattle. So I'm going to point my cannon uh, 93 degrees from north and I'm going to fire it towards New York City and I'm going to that's how I'm going to go to New York City like no it doesn't that's not how physics work and and you mentioned you know how how bright could the earth possibly be right could you actually see it from where he is uh, so so he's at Neptune he's a he's um, almost as far from earth as the Voyager 1 spacecraft was when it took the famous uh, pale blue dot uh, image um, so that was that was taken from about six billion kilometers away from from the Earth, uh, and this was a um, uh, as as the Voyager one spacecraft was leaving the solar system, uh, the uh, the idea came from uh, I believe um, a scientist named Carolyn Porco, um, who uh, actually was uh, briefly one of my professors at the University of Colorado, and oh. uh, she came up with this this thing and said let's turn this thing around and, and see if we can see the Earth. Uh, from that far away, and uh, you know, it was famously uh, described by Carl Sagan uh, in in his book of the same name, Pale Blue Dot. Um, but uh, you know, the thing that's relevant here is that for the for that that picture, it's the Earth takes up less than a pixel, less than a single pixel, and uh, you know, our steely-eyed missile man is able to sort of eyeball it and go, well, that's that's the one right there, and we'll just kind of sort of. You know, give it some Kentucky windage and uh, and aim right for it, and make it all the way back to Earth on the single explosion that that takes him all the way there. And then he gets home, and he's uh, I don't want to say welcomed, but like the the ending thing is, you know, the the military guys come up to him, come up to his spacecraft, and you know they offer him a hand, and he takes the guy's hand, and he's reconnecting with his humanity, but. Uh, you know, one of my biggest questions, and I put this in bold and uh, and uh, red and uh, question mark, did he expect to hero's welcome when he got back to Earth? Because, I mean, they knew where Tommy Lee Jones was. They had a crew. That crew had a nuclear bomb. They were going to go out. They were going to nuke Tommy Lee Jones. They were going to save the, 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 the human race. And what he did was he commandeered their ship, got everybody killed, uh, went out, didn't execute the mission as it was instructed, by you know messing around there could have caused what if the, another surge had happened that had knocked out his nuclear bomb right uh, what if Tommy Lee Jones had killed him right so and this is this is a government again that had hidden the fact that Tommy Lee Jones had uh, killed his crew had buried that information uh, what do you think the odds were that Brad Pitt would be welcomed back as a hero in that situation versus uh, no, our crew went to Neptune. Uh, we successfully intercepted the problem. 
it was a glitchy system. The whole crew was long dead. Uh, unfortunately, though, our crew got injured on the way back and uh, didn't make it. So they're all heroes. Hooray. Yay, Space Force. Yay, uh, yay Space Force. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't... Yeah, none of none of the motivations in this movie make any sense. None of the reactions that anyone gets for their actions are uh, from other people makes any sense. Up to and including Brad Pitt getting back together with his his uh, ex-wife, uh, Liv Tyler, uh, at the very end of the film, um, because yes, because he doesn't want to be a distant partner like his dad was uh, for some reason. Uh, but you know, Liv Tyler basically shows up uh, for. You know, a couple of minutes to read some lines about how Brad Pitt has, you know, chosen his career over family and whatever else, uh, and then uh, maybe forgives him at the end. Why not? Uh, it makes his it makes her performance as uh, Arwen seem positively Shakespearean. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's like you know depth and rationale behind her actions in, in that film. Um, so I used to think that if a genie granted me three wishes, uh, I'd wish for world peace, uh, an end to poverty and uh, eternal health for my children. But I've now decided that uh, what I would do is I would ask James Gray these three questions. How does the son really feel about the father? Because uh, I can't tell from this movie. Between the father and the son, who, if anyone, had an anger management issue? There's many, 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 many quotes about fury and anger. And I didn't see either one of them uh, exhibit uh, anything like anger in any scene in this movie. It's, of course, hinted at because the father killed his crew, but uh, we don't see any of that, right? Uh, and then the uh, the thing about his dad killing himself right after saying, uh, "You and I need to carry on together." Like, what did he? What did the director intend? What was? Why did? Why did he kill himself? Why? Why Tim? Why? 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 Why did anybody do anything in this movie? Uh, none of it makes any sense. No, nope. uh, people liked it though. I, I, it's somewhat inexplicable to me. I don't. I don't understand. Um, I'm. It's fun that we both dislike this movie. Uh, I'm really eager to do uh, Annihilation, which is another movie I super disliked and you super liked. Yes. So uh, soon enough, instead of both of us bagging on a film that we both hate, it'll be really fun to have uh, diametrically opposed opinions uh, about uh, about a movie. So shall we do... We're, we're at like an hour and a half. Uh, shall we do our uh, evaluation of science fiction film? Oh, let's. All right. Science. Well... How low should we go here? We have to leave some room for films that are just comprehensively vile, yeah. right? In their science, and 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 I kind of have to, I kind of have to still grade on a curve, right? Because this is the most realistic, uh, you know, science fiction movie uh, to to ever be made about about spaceflight. Um, so so given that, you know, there's a handful of things that are mostly okay, cool zero g stuff. There's uh, a lot of the spacewalk things, um, like when they're actually doing spacewalks, you see some, you know, good use of tethers. The, you know, a lot of prominent uh, display of the handholds on the outside of the vehicle that, like, of the right size and shape and everything else. And you can see that I'm stretching here to find things that are uh, scientifically accurate, but they're there. It's not flat wrong. So I'm, I'm gonna say uh, on uh, our, our scale is, our scale is one to ten. Uh, percentage, percentage, zero percent to one hundred percent. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a twenty percent. Twenty percent. So not a, right. not a zero, but a but but uh, definitely not a passing score. I think I'm. I think I'm gonna go higher. 
because I think anything less than a 90 is clearly would be devastating to a director who set out to make the most scientifically accurate film ever made. I, you know, I think if we go to take a look at Armageddon or uh, there's a number of films that I think are at least twice as bad at the science, I'm going to go as high as 40%. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, while there were a number of things that uh, drove me nuts, you know, they used some they used some reasonable terms uh, at various points. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to go with 40 percent. So we give it an aggregate of 30 percent. Now, uh, how does it work as fiction? Um, so in order to work as fiction, it has to have a story. Uh, and the story, uh, you know, needs to have motivations. It needs to have, uh, you know, why do the characters do what they do? How do they get from one place to another? And this doesn't really have have much of that. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, I, I agree with with your description earlier that this is sort of an attempt at a hero's journey. There's a sort of like Joseph Campbell kind of thing buried in here somewhere. There's, you know, this you know father-son tension etc but but none of it hangs together it's not it's not a complete mess of a story it does have a a beginning a middle and an end uh it has separate acts um and uh so i'm not i can't give it a zero here either um i'm gonna i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with about a 30 percent on on story because it, it again it's not it's not a complete mishmash but it is not a compelling story and it does not hang together. Well, this is one where I think I already said earlier in the podcast that I thought it failed more as a work of fiction than it did as a work of science. So I'm going to go with 20% on this. I think that the story is completely all over the place. I think that the voiceover is possibly the most annoying voiceover and most banal voiceover that I've ever heard in any movie. So uh, I'm going to 20%. So twice to twice as twice as bad as if you will on the science part. Now the film part as a as a uh, film versus book versus portrait versus play versus whatever art for other art form you want to mention. How does it work as a piece of film? So as a piece of film, um, and and trying to to separate that from from the story itself, and and even from the the science piece of it you know i mentioned the the sort of fetishization of human spaceflight history that we see throughout this film um and it's the kind of thing that like it doesn't make sense in the story like it doesn't make sense from an engineering or science perspective uh but it does look really cool right you you get this throwback to the um to the space shuttle uh, command deck you get you know these interiors that look like something out of the international space station uh, you get this beautiful detail of the spacesuits um, down to all the all the little bits and pieces and latches and and seals and everything else um, and it looks very good on screen and you know some of the cooler images of being in orbit around the planets that they're visiting uh, are, are pretty fantastic uh, and so you know if this were if I were to separate everything else out and say, what does it look like on screen? You know, if this were playing in the background at a, at a party uh, with, you know, <laughs> and the music, the music was actually pretty good. So I'm not, I'm not going to, going to bag on the music, um, but with, you know, no dialogue going on. Um, I would, you know, I'd be interested. I'd, I would kind of, you know, want to, want to kind of take a look at it from time to time. And so, uh, but it, you know, it, it still didn't 
didn't quite blow me away. Uh, but I'm gonna give it a uh, I'm gonna give it a 75% on on film. Uh, I pretty much agree. I, I call it 80%. I thought it was a very pretty film. Um, I thought it was one of the one of the better shot science fiction films that I have seen. You know, the blackness of space, the emptiness of space, uh, the emptiness the emptiness of most every place other than Earth. Uh, I thought it was well done. Um, so as cinematogra- cinematographically, yeah, if it was on at a party in background or, you know, the thing that I get nowadays, which is somebody else is watching it on an airplane. I guess this was pre-COVID days, right? But the guy in front of me is watching it uh, on his uh, TV screen. I would have totally been like, I should see this movie. I should see what this is about. I don't know why they have exploding uh, baboons, but uh, I want to see this film. And you'd be wrong. Uh, to, to want to do that. Um, <laughs> yep, I, think. I would, I would. But, you know, as we've discussed, uh, it's in the, it's, it's, uh, here's a clue on the name of our podcast. Intuition is not always right. The thing that you think is intuitively right is sometimes not. And with that, it's probably time to say goodbye to our audience. Uh, are, are we going to do Annihilation next time? Is that are we going to are we going to step into that? I think I kind of like. I to. think we should. So we've done one movie that we both really like. Uh, we've done a movie that we both extremely dislike. And uh, so I think to continue our journey into film, we should uh, have one that we disagree on and, and see how that goes. Awesome. Then Annihilation it is. Uh, we'll say thank you to our podcast listeners and uh, keep watching science fiction films. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Monty Hall Effect. People ask us, does the show being named The Monty Hall Effect have anything to do with the 18 to 21 centimeter waterhole? As the 80s prog rock supergroup Asia once said, only time will tell. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us or find out more about us at the Monty Hall Effect podcast page on Buzzsprout. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films.